Welcome to Kid Tech, the show that goes behind the scenes with some of the most interesting and influential people in the kids' digital media space. I'm your host, Dylan Collins, CEO of Super Awesome. Um, today, an episode which um, we have been trying to line up for, for many, many months. Um, we have Nick Walters, uh, who is now Managing Director of Super Awesome Gaming um, on the show. Welcome, Nick. Hello, good, great to be here. Um, I'm sort of going to steal some of your thunder by talking about you and then maybe ask you to talk about you a little bit better than I did. Nick um, is part of Super Awesome, but previously he ran Hopster, uh, which was uh, still is one of the leading kids' um, SVOD platforms um, in the UK and into Europe. Before that, he worked in Nickelodeon and has got many interesting stories from Russia. Um, and today we are going to be talking uh, really about the metaverse, the future of gaming, and how all of this intersects with young audiences. Nick, how did I do on your background? Yep, that is all. All of that is accurate. All of that is accurate. Um, I, I would also, I'd also like to point out the delicious irony in the we've been trying to set this up for months, despite actually being a member of staff, uh, you know, on the same Slack channels. <laughs> I think am I, am I the first? Um, am I the first Super Awesome employee to actually to 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 uh you you are not be... a, you you are not actually the first unfortunately uh so regular oh, listeners will, will know that we we uh, we often have craig on from the pop jam team oh that makes uh, me feel who, much better who, who covers who covers uh research and insights periodically um but it's i i think there's just it, it's such an interesting kind of time and place when you look at sort of what's going on in gaming and sort of the, the this whole concept of the metaverse that like you know um a lot of people have referred to you as the matthew ball of the kids sector so i thought it was just a great opportunity to actually test that theory out uh, i mean that is that is i mean that bar is that bar is somewhat alarming uh matthew ball is matthew, matthew ball has been uh, as i think he has for everyone been pretty formative in um in uh, in in uh, shaping our thinking of what this what this space is going to look like, so that that bar is very high. Uh, and if anyone listening to this who does not know who Matthew Ball is, I would encourage you to Google Matthew Ball and uh, start with his Metaverse um, uh, essay because it will, apart from anything else, it will give you a very good read on how much of it I will be recycling. Um, so you can judge my originality by the points at which I am able to depart from ground that Matthew Ball has already uh, has already laid out for us. Okay, let's try and start with a little bit of history for everybody listening. So I want to talk about the, the evolution over time of kids' digital experiences. So when you, when you think about like the last, let's call it the last 10 years, you can go back further if you want, right? How, how, do you, how do you think about, I suppose, the different step changes that we've seen in digital experiences. So if you go kind of go back for, for, for kids and young audiences, I mean, right? So if you go back to um, Club Penguin, uh, which Disney acquired, which, which in many respects, and I think I've heard you describe this um, in, in this way as, as sort of one of the first proto metaverses. Um, we went from there to what was described as sort of virtual worlds, which was Moshi monsters and, and Pop Tropica and, and things like that. You know, we then, of course, went to Hopster, you know, and kids streaming video platforms. And, you know, today 
we have Roblox, which is, you know, an absolute monster and, and, and Minecraft, of course, somewhere in the middle. But, but when you sort of think about all those things and you organize them in your head, like what, for, for people listening, I suppose, other than like names and brands and logos, like what, what do those represent as a series of steps? Yeah, so I, I think there's a really interesting concept to think about here, wherein one of the fundamental sort of evergreen principles of kids is the persistence of IP and the importance of IP and the lifetime cycle of IP. You know, very broadly, if you work in kids TV, um, a show, you launch a show, the show's small, it gets an audience, it gets big, um, and then it very often kind of winnows off a little bit, um, has to be retired, rested for a while, and then sometimes come back, come, comes back so sort of 10, 15 years later or, or some period of time later. Um, and so you can sort of look at something like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles as an example, and it's kind of launched, got big, rested for a bit, came back. Um, and I think it was, the reason I think it's interesting to think about Club Penguin and Moshi um, as being sort of proto-metaverses, if you like, is that those web experiences were sort of the first times you sort of vaguely gestured in the in the direction of something which is quite profound, which was that the idea that some of the like they could be sites or locations that you could go to <clears throat> that contained multiple they didn't quite contain multiple IPs, but they could be regularly refreshed by the ability to do new things, which is something that I think TV channels always did. Right? Like Nickelodeon was a fixture for thirty or forty years. And it was partly a fixture for 30 and that brand never needed to be rested because it was consistently refreshed by the fact that you had new shows launching and so even if the nickelodeon brand had been getting stale you just launched a big new show and nickelodeon was cool and interesting again um and so you know neither club penguin nor nor moshi were exactly sort of homes for third party ip in quite that way but they did they launched new games they regularly refreshed stuff they brought in new ideas um they launched new micro games they had new activities they launched a message board or the wall or things so it's sort of there were ways of of them being digital properties that could be kept alive by the addition of new new stuff and kind of they were they were in their own very small way platforms on which new things could be added um uh, in a way that sort of kept them that, that, that made them interesting um and you had avatars you had something that looked like an identity they were social so you could chat to your friends so they had some of the building blocks of a platform a bit like roblox what then happened is that mobile blows up. And I think there's an interesting way to think about mobile, which is there's almost a fork in interactive experiences um, for, um, for kids at that point, um, because you continue, you have the web platforms, the Moshis and, the, and things like that, which really struggle to translate to mobile. I mean, famously, mobile is kind of what kills Moshi, uh, arguably amongst other things, but it's one of the factors that plays into its decline. And they're expansive, they're open, they're social, you can chat to your friends. You can't do that by and large for kids on mobile for a long time, um, partly for technical reasons, partly because um, um, it's there's, there's limitations on what you can achieve on an iPhone 3 or an iPhone 4. Um, and, um, and, and as a result, you get this sort of interesting bifurcation where mobile gaming goes down a very specific kind of branch where it's, it's not terribly social, it's very casual, it's not that immersive. Your average time for a kid playing a mobile app is actually quite short, it's you know, five to 10 minutes maximum. Um, and I think one of the ways that gets, and, and so 
the mobile experience for a long time, from certainly from sort of 2000 and, you know, 2008, 2009 through 2017, um, doesn't feel very metaverse. It doesn't feel like it's evolving towards the metaverse because what it is is a lot of single apps, basically. And those are apps that you typically download, use for a couple of days, a couple of weeks, and then throw away. Um, and one of the reflections of that, I think, is that actually one of the things that doesn't really take off is a sort of kid seven to 12 mobile gaming ecosystem as distinct from the rest of the grown up ecosystem. Sort of kids are in preschool apps until they're about seven. And then they jump off and they head off into FIFA or they head off into Subway Surfers or they head off into Angry Birds or whatever. And if you ever checked out the the kids, uh, I think the, I think Apple categorized kids eight to twelve in the App Store. It's actually it's a bit of a desert. There's not much there because that because the um, there's not that many products in the App Store that are actually good for that a good good for that age group. And I think that's kind of a reflection of the fact that there are just real limitations in the, in the on in what you can achieve in mobile gaming. What's really interesting, I then think, is that in what you've seen in the most recent um, phase of kind of gaming development is that around 2017, um, you get sufficient technology changes that um, platforms like Minecraft and Roblox kind of come back into the mobile space. Like Bedrock Edition for Minecraft launched in 2017. Roblox sought out their mobile experience in 2016, 17, so it actually gets good. And in both cases, what you see is one, usage goes through the roof. So Roblox's kick up really in, in Roblox's kind of inflection point in users really correlates to the point when they sort out their mobile experience. And it kind so it's really, it gets a lot of usage. And it also kind of brings, it kind of shuts down, I think, in a way that sort of um, dead end that mobile gaming for 8 to 12 had kind of gone into and it brings that audience back and it brings the, the mobile platform for those guys sort of back into the back into the wider gaming ecosystem um, and I think in retrospect that sort of the, the technical innovations represented by uh, by Bedrock by Fortnite launching in 2017 as natively cross-platform I think those are actually quite profound changes in the in the game ecosystem for kids and young teens. How much I mean you know, I, I think that's a really, really interesting um, sort of line that you've traced there. How much of it, like when you talk about that explosion in sort of 17, 18, Roblox, Minecraft in particular, like how much of that was also down to enabling tools to create? Like it being much more of a creation UGC driven experience versus kind of pure consumption, really, in a sense. Right, right. And I think that's, I mean, that's what Minecraft had always been, right? And But I think one of the things that, um, it, 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 and, and that's also obviously what Roblox had always been as well. Um, but I think there was this kind of mismatch where the most interesting tools were on web or to a certain extent console, but most of the users were on mobile. And that sort of retarded the development of the space because the you were, you had a mismatch between where people were and where the, where the really interesting things that you could do um, were available and the ability to suddenly and then you know bringing develops in mobile technology basically and improvements in the quality of the of the of the devices kind of enabled us to bring those back together and suddenly you had great creation tools available to loads and loads of people uh, and that that I think has led to a real kind of Cambrian explosion that's really had the flywheel that's really sped up the flywheels a lot. Um, during this time of course you know, we'd all been, I mean, in the, in the kids' digital space, we'd all been talking about the, 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 the inevitable, then gradual, then accelerating decline of linear TV. 
Um, and, and, you know, linear TV in the kids' world remains surprisingly large in 2021. I mean, it's, it's, it's obviously its decline is, 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 you know, also significant, but it is still there. It is still a material amount. Um, how does this shift to, to gaming, to game creation platforms, to the metaverse, whatever you want to, want to think about it, um, how does that impact linear media or linear or comp media companies that have still have a strong linear base? I mean, is this is this the final nail in the coffin of linear, or or is do you feel kids linear TV as is sort of at its its core um, in terms of in terms of viewing numbers? So am, am I am I conflating these two points? Well, so I think there's I think there's a couple of things going on here. Um, one is from a user point of view, if nothing changed, where would the bottom be in linear TV viewing? And I think it's certainly true to say that bottom is not zero. I, I don't know where it is. I think it's probably less than it is now, but it's it's not zero. Um, and I think it's probably right that if nothing else changed um, um, or, or there was no further action taken by the broadcasters, you'd, you'd see the pace of decline in linear slow down. Um, you'd see it sort of, you know, you'd, you'd see it going from kind of, we lost 50% in a decade to 25% over the next decade or something, maybe. Um, but the problem is that the audience doesn't have to drop to zero for it to cease to be economic or worthwhile for the broadcasters to continue running those channels. Um, and you've already seen, um, you know, you saw Sony sell off their entire kids, um, kids channel portfolio in two markets over the last couple of years. Um, you've seen Disney announce they're going to be shutting down a bunch of their channels. So at a certain point, it almost doesn't matter, even if there's a rump of 40% of the previous audience who are really, who still want to uh, consume content that way, it ceases to be as important because it's no longer economic for the broadcaster to run the services and they get shut down anyway, which further, further sort of, um, uh, further, 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 reduces the audience. Um, where does that end up? I, 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 I do think there is a sense in which it may increasingly not matter um, that when you open up the, if you look at where a lot of SVOD services or AVOD services are going in terms of auto, like just combining autoplay and really strong recommendation algorithms, an SVOD service can actually spit out something that looks quite a lot like a linear feed quite easily. Um, and could you end up in a place where you open up your digitally connected set top box, some content starts playing and you don't even really know if at the back end it's coming from a linear feed or it's coming from, it's being streamed over VOD. Um, I think that's not impossible or, or, or that that could become a rather kind of arbitrary technical distinction, like whether it's coming via satellite or cable. I mean, who, who really cares? Um, so I think I, I do think we could become increasingly sort of agnostic to the delivery mechanism. Um, 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 so I, um, I'm, I, I sort of, I, I think where we've got to with linear is not that we've answered all the questions, but the questions have just become kind of less important. Right, right, right. Um, I, I guess we're riffing on that a bit, like 10 years from now, you and I sit down to record another episode of this. It's 2031. We're discussing the top five kids media companies in 2031. Are any of them recognizable names from today? That's such an interesting question. And I think it, it goes to what 
you think a media company is, right? Like, so clearly Roblox, I think, will be there, right? Clearly, clearly, in terms of places where kids spend time, Roblox will be one of those. Roblox will be a will will be a, a factor, I think, you know, basis. They very well entrenched, uh, great network effects, clear platform lead. Like it's difficult to see that getting, you know, it's, it's difficult to see them just disappearing. Now, do you think that Roblox is a media company? Well, they have an audience, they manage an audience, they maintain an audience. They're a place a lot of people go to. Do they have their own IP? Not really in the same way. They don't, you know, they could argue they sort of license IP in a way that's analogous to a terrestrial broadcast channel, but they don't have their own IP. They're not going to take a lot of some, you know, it's going to be difficult for them to take the IP and do other things with it. Um, so they have some of the elements of being a media company, but if the fundamental attribute of being a media company is we have IP, we tell stories and we kind of create, cre we create media that people consume on um, um, as, you know, as media on screens or as reading, Roblox doesn't quite fit the definition. Um, and I think there is an interesting thing which says, like, if you, um, if if you're, if you are a big conventional media company, if you're a big owner of IP, do you have the ability to go build a significant audience on somewhere like Roblox? And can you build, if you happen to own SpongeBob SquarePants, um, can you take that IP and recreate it on a game platform? Sure, you can definitely do that. Um, and I think we've been people have been saying for a while, you know, the IP will win, content is king. I do think that continues to have some truth to it. Like I think it, it, one way of asking the question of asking that question is, will SpongeBob still be a thing? Will Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles still be a thing? Will Dora the Explorer still be a thing in ten years' time? And I think the answer is yes. And if you happen to own those, then yes, that will bring you some some scale. Right, but but does the 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 emergence of all of these um, fundamentally UGC user generated content driven platforms mean that the IP might be there, but the notion of storytelling in kids media, like linear storytelling will fundamentally be gone. Um, I think it is to us. This is a question I need to be super careful with. Cause I could end up looking really stupid in 10 years time. Um, <laughs> I mean, there, there are many things which could cause me to look really stupid in 10 years' time, but this is particularly one of them. Um, you would, something pretty fundamental would have to change about humans if narrative storytelling in whatever, for, in, in, um, in, in some form ceased to be important in the next couple of generations. You know, just as a very basic kind of prior about what humans are like humans enjoy being told narrative stories and participating in narrative stories um and one of the most fundamental early things things we know about what made humans difference made humans who they are is that is that observation so i think it seems unlikely that that will collapse um and you know you you yeah it, for all that we talk and we'll continue to talk about gaming getting big kids spending their time in gaming and speed and kids wanting to um being super receptive to um interactive media their like movies continue to be a huge business um 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 yeah, netflix youtube content amazon prime like we're, we're still creating a lot of a lot of sort of narrative driven you know lean back and watch it stories um i do think it is absolutely true um that we will begin to see ip move the other way 
that in the same way that one of the first thing that one of the one of the big successes in Fortnite has been taking the Marvel characters, bring them into Fortnite, you'll begin to see characters or stories or settings come from games and go out into narrative storytelling settings. I think that's absolutely true. And I guess kind of linking back to what you're saying to, to the question about where are the top five media companies, um, I think you'd say with a certain degree of confidence that it will not be the same as the top five media companies now, and not just because they as they've already been doing their merging and combining, but yeah. that you'll see um, you'll see new engines for IP coming out of gaming and then exploiting that IP in new, different and interesting ways, some of which will also be back into narrative storytelling. Um, so with all that in mind, like if I am a brand and I'm trying to figure out how to engage with young audiences right now, am I, am I holding back and waiting a bit longer? Am I, am I running at one platform in particular? Am I spreading my bets? Am I investing in my own capability? Um, I mean, you, you like, you know, with Super Awesome Gaming, I mean, you're in these conversations literally every day, right? Like how, how um, I, I suppose let's, let's not turn this into a sales pitch as in like, well, what would you advise? But what, what are the kinds of things you're hearing from, you know, CMOs and, and content folks across, across um, toy companies? Yeah, so I think there is... I think the things which are really appealing to people is obviously there's an audience there. And as soon as there's an audience on a platform that you can't access, that's really interesting. And the first question is, well, how do I get there? Um, I think there's a second second set of questions then, which is, um, uh, which is around um, um, what does my experience look like there? What am I, you know, if, if I want to be in gaming, what, you know, what should I be doing? Um, and some people have thought through views on what that looks like and many don't. Um, and I think it is, there is a real innovators dilemma here around if you are a toy company, for example, and you have historic, what you've historically done is sold physical toys. Um, and your key, you know, one of your key metrics is how much shelf space do I get in a big retailer, in a Walmart or a Tesco or a, or a Target. Um, am, do I see gaming as being ancillary to that business? Am I, is it fundamentally about promotion or actually have I discovered a new vector and that actually I'm no longer, I'm a play company and I'm no longer going to be selling toys. I'm going to be selling digital play experiences because there is a tension between those two. If you are all in on, I'm going to, on, on I'm not, uh, what I'm now selling is digital play experiences. And if you used to buy my toy or you used to buy my apparel in the physical world, you are now going to buy it in the digital world, which is not an insane thing to think on a 10 to 20 year time frame. If you are all in on that hypothesis, then you are building different types of games and you're using those games differently than you would be if you fundamentally think about it as being a marketing and promotion agreement, uh, a promotion um, 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 vector. Um, and I think there is a, my personal view is actually, I do think the, almost inevitably, because this is kind of what happens a lot of people will be will be slower to jump onto that shift than they maybe should be because they have legacy businesses and existing relationships. Uh, and I do think there'll be interesting opportunities for the people who are who are who are making that shift faster. Um, all of that said, um, I think it's also really important to think about the product you have and the brand that you have. If you're um, you know, if you're a retailer, if you're a supermarket, that's also interested in talking to a, a kids and family audience. Um, and the example I've often used is like Tesco. Like, are te should Tesco build a Roblox world? Probably not. It wouldn't be very good. People wouldn't want to go there. You don't have deep IP. There's no 
point in being immersed in a Tesco world in Roblox. So you might, for, for you, you, you got to think about other ways to reach an audience through gaming. Gaming is still important, but don't you, you probably don't want to try and build a deep, a deep, immersive kind of play experience. That's that's not what your brand is or your product is about. Um, it's interesting though. You went to you sort of touched on retail a bit with that. Like you have, you and I have kind of kicked around this concept of of more and more purchasing happening in games not for the games themselves, but, but for the content. And um, I'm, I'm, I'm crediting you with the term G-commerce. Yes, gaming um, commerce, gaming commerce, yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, do, do you feel that we're going to see the emergence of, of new e-commerce platforms that are, that are almost being born in these games? Or how, like, how, how, do, you, how do you see that? Like just sort of continue that 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 sort of point you made about sort of the the transposition of you know purchase of things from physical to game. Over yeah, time. I mean, I mean that one I have reasonably high confidence in. I think in the, I think one of the fundamental points about gaming is like the default model of the internet is advertising. The default model of gaming is transactions. Um, if you look at Roblox, Roblox made one point two billion in twenty twenty. Um, the amount that was all transactions essentially. Um, that was, you know, if, if there's everything else is literally a rounding error. They don't even bother splitting it, splitting it out in the in the S1. Um, so the established ecosystem is about transactions, about buying things. That's one very powerful thing. Second very powerful thing, which is clearly emerged, is you have a a persistent avatar, which is a representation of you, which you are invested in. You care about how it looks, uh, and and people spend a majority of kids will want to spend money. Um, and you know, today's kids are tomorrow's teenagers, etc. cetera, uh, will want to spend money making sure that avatar is on point and equipping that avatar in a way that 10 or 20 years ago, they would wanted to have outfitted themselves, their latest trainers, or they would wanted to outfit themselves with the latest t-shirt. They want to make sure their avatar skins are on point. Um, so the two fundamental drivers of sort of real world commerce, which are like, you know, social status and, you know, um, uh, and um, yeah, and sort of the availability of transactional mechanisms; those are deeply present in gaming. Um, so I think it is, if given that those two are present, it seems um, almost certain. I think that you will see new form that, that you will see more and more transactional behavior happen in 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 online games. Not least because ultimately you're fishing in the same pool. Um, you know, if you're in the sense that if, if if I spend my pocket money in Roblox, I can't now spend my pocket money buying a new pair of sneakers in, um, uh, in, in a physical store. If I'm a smart retailer, I'm thinking about two things. One, I'm thinking about how, would I, how might I want to link those two experiences up? Like if I've, if I've equipped my avatar, if I'm, a, if I'm a sneaker company and I'm selling sneakers for my avatar to wear, would I then want to buy that the same pair of sneakers? Would I get a discount if I've already paid Robux for them? Um, if I've if I developed a custom pair of sneakers for my avatar to wear in Roblox, would I then be interested in wearing them? Uh, would I be in the game in buying that same custom pair of sneakers in the real world? That's one really interesting factor. And secondly, is I think the um, there's a really interesting thing not just for kids, although I think again kids may well be early adopters, around what the shopping experience looks like. I think that one of the points that Ben Evans makes um, when he talks about e-commerce is the internet has made it possible to buy, for anyone in America, to buy anything that you could buy in New York. Um, 
but you can't shop the way you can shop in New York in that you can't have the experience of going into a boutique that's nicely laid out, where there's a kind of retail theater experience, where some things are hand curated for you, where there's an assistant available to kind of chat with you and talk you through your options. Um, so although you have access to everything, the shopping experience on, in, on, in, on existing web e-commerce is actually still kind of quite narrow. Gaming, 3D gaming world seemed to me to offer the possibility of changing that. Like if you think, if what, you know, if you think about, could you build an interesting looking boutique in Roblox? Yeah, sure. I mean, Gucci did that. Could you have, you know, an army of virtual shop assistants in each server instance? You know, yeah, of course you could, if it was worth your while and they could totally chat with you and, and you can try things on with your avatar. Um, and so reimagining what a shopping experience looks like in gaming seems, um, Seems, yeah, seems like we have a lot of the threads there to actually re, to, to make something which is genuinely disruptively better in uh, in games than you can do on web. Um, we've seen a bunch of investment go into uh, kids and young teen payment platforms over the last six or nine months. Like wh when you think about that evolution you're talking about towards much more um, in-game e-commerce or or in-game as a as a sort of a a shopping location do you think the game platforms need to own the financial infrastructure or is is that one of those things that can be left fundamentally unbundled like um, yeah, do you see what i mean yeah absolutely absolutely i'm so can it be left fundamentally unbundled? I think the answer is probably yes. Right. So I think I think this like um where I think a lot of the game platforms will go is they'll go down a path of increasing openness. Like from a Roblox game, you can already hit an external API. So you can build a Roblox game, publish it on the Roblox platform. That game can hit an external API. So for example, it can tell you what the weather is um, in the city you are. Um, as soon as you have data flowing into and out of the game, then people are going to start building new and more and more layers on top of that. And it's you know that that um, the the market and the sort of innovation economy will or you know innovators and third parties and developers will figure out more and more interesting solutions you can put into you can push into that. Um, so whether or not platforms really lean into it, I think might slow or speed up the development of some of the things we just talked about a bit, but I don't think they fundamentally stop it. There's probably a more interesting question, which is, do game companies want to participate in that space? And do they want, do you effectively end up creating a new, you know, a new medium of exchange called Robux, which has validity in the real world? Um, and that seems to me a really interesting question. And it's a it's a hard question, um, but it remind in the sense that it comes with an awful lot of responsibilities. It's like it, you know, there's a, managing a new system, of, a new means of exchange that um, uh, in that in that in that way is a lot of work, and it takes it at, at a time when all of these game companies are have got a million other priorities. It does remind me a little bit though of being in the mobile industry in like 2003, 2004, and the thing popped up. Because that's where I started my career. My, the first, first, first thing that I ever did was working in, in mobile marketing, which is like SMS marketing at the time. And there was a thing that started to crop up in the UK where you could do premium SMS. And basically, um, anyone could set up a premium SMS account. So you could be charged £10 for a text. You could set up a service that would charge people £10 for a text message. Um, and the 
Uh, and so what people started doing is saying, well, look, I will sell you this thing that's worth seven pounds. Um, and then you subscribe to my premium SMS rate SMS service. I will send you one SMS. It'll cost you ten pounds less carrier fees, um, and that will be the means of settlement. And the carriers looked at it and they were like, um, and decided they hated it because the way that billing worked, they they didn't actually, you know, they didn't get that ten pounds back from the customer until for another forty five days or sixty days. They're out of pocket. It was bad for their cash flow. And they were like, no, 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 we got to we got to shut this down. This is kind of difficult. It's hard. It's bad for cash flow. It's yeah. It turned, but that was that was the first instance of what you might call like mobile billing and mobile payment. Um, and it turns out that that's actually a pretty good ecosystem. So you know, that's you know, the, paying for things via your mobile phone turns out to be an absolutely huge space, which is now worth billions and billions of dollars. Um, and the carriers couldn't wrap their head around it. Um, and so there was an opportunity. But there was an opportunity there that was that was there to be gone at if people cared to seize it. Um, and I do think the game companies are fundamentally technology companies. They operate at global scale. They've got 20 years of experience under their belt. It would, I speak with no special or inside knowledge at all about um, the inside plans of any of these companies, um, but it would, it seem, having done so much of the hard yards in terms of building um, a means of exchange system on platform, beginning to open that up um, to further partners and vendors seems very logical. Intriguing. Um... I feel we could almost have another episode just based on that that uh, that hypothetical. Um, you you had some concerns about making predictions for for the far future, Nick, because of potential room for ridicule. So what I think is a is a perfectly fair compromise is that I ask you to make a prediction for next year, for twenty twenty two, which is something that we're actually asking every guest on this season of Kid Tech. So how do you from, from a kids industry perspective, what would you expect to see in 2022? Mm. So I will go a couple on this. I think one is, I think you see video in video in games at, at scale, right? Like you've it, currently you can get the only way you can get video into a game is basically you phone up Fortnite or Roblox or you know Minecraft and ask them very nicely to make some dev resource available and they someone manually puts a video into your game effectively. Um, that will I think that will change over time so that develops so that um, um, so that it can be done at scale by third parties with minimal touch from the from the game platforms. Um, I'm pretty confident we get there in the next eighteen months and I'm reasonably confident that that's a big deal. Um, yeah. People like video is pretty well proven. Um, I think if once you get video into game experiences, I think you will. Um, I think that's actually a material competitive threat for YouTube. Um, um, and I think you that's also where I think you get innovation. You will get innovation innovation around the viewing experience as well. Um, I, that's certainly one. Um, I will. Um, if you will see unquestionably see. I, I think you'll see more and more innovation around retail. Um, I do think you'll see people starting to do um, get the item in, buy, create the item in, item in game, get it for real. Um, you know, customize the item in game, get it for real. I think that seems very likely. Um, and you are, I think, going to see some new IP companies. So, so new IP come out of the gaming space and start to travel outside of gaming. I think it's interesting, like, 
VNC people like Adopt Me doing quite license, like or quite conventional kids media things like um, appointing licensors and spinning out toy lines and things like that. I think that's that's definitely coming down the track. Well, Nick, that was a suitably multi-dimensional set of predictions for what has been an equally multi-dimensional conversation. Um, Nick Walters, Managing Director of Super Awesome Gaming, thank you very much for joining us on Kid Tech. Awesome. Thanks so much.